Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about practical tensegrity, the interplay between tension and compression. So as we look through tensegrity, we got to think about anatomy trains, we got to think about different cardinal planes, we got to think about different vectors, we got to think about a whole lot of things. We're going to think about how we're going to set up our training in an actual team or individual setting to make sure that we're hitting our tension, our tensegrity the way that we should be. If you aren't a member of phpodcast.com curriculum, I highly recommend you do so now. We have a ton of modules on there, 50 and count, 50 and growing. Each one is broken up into four sections, principles, practical, case study, and interview with the strength coach. For instance, Tensegrity, this one has a full-on written portion, graphics, other videos, other resources to dive into to really fully understand and grasp Tensegrity, as well as only on the website, you can get access to the case study, which this week we're gonna be talking a lot about how I implement ideas of multi-planner and multi-vector training within a, a training session, a training program in general. So head over to phpodcast.com, become a member. I highly recommend you get on the forums and ask a ton of questions. I'm constantly on there interacting with all of our members. We have Strength Deficit, our book on leveraging eccentric versus concentric ratios. This is going to be your technical guide on how to incorporate strength deficit within your setting, whether it's one-on-one or group, whether you're working with athletes or general population clients. It's going to be a huge resource for you. It's really dense. There's a lot of great feedback. Head over to our Strength Deficit landing page or right on phpodcast.com. You'll see a book with Strength Deficit right next to it. goes through how to navigate this, which goes into our next aspect. We have coming soon a course on strength deficit. This is your companion guide, your practical guide to how to leverage strength deficit within your setting. So the big feedback we got from the book is extremely technical. Really want to learn how to met this within my setting. Highly recommend you get in the course and when it comes out because it's going to be a huge asset for you when you're trying to understand what do I do with this information I learned from strength deficit. Finally, Realize.me. This is your command center for all health and wellness data. I use this with all of my clients. All right, so let's start to think about now tensegrity from a practical aspect. You know, we talked about that it's the interplay between tension and compression. And we use this model that Buckminster Fuller described with architecture for structures to be stable and malleable to the environment. Right, so it can resist great forces as well as it could transmit great forces. And the perfect analogy would always be thinking about a suspension bridge. So you have this image of the Golden Gate Bridge, you have the structures like the upright columns and then the, ta- the cables that connect to it that allow for that bridge to flow with wind or fluids to be stable to allow for cars to transfer over. Key difference being, is that we need these stable structures or these compressed structures like a bone to move and we need the tension structures like contractile tissue or fascia to allow for that movement to handle or move freely. Before we really crank on this idea of compression and tension, let's revisit that idea of compressional discontinuity, meaning that we need to have this interplay between compression and tension to allow for forces to be transmitted without destroying the structure, right? So if you think about jumping, landing, changing direction, one of the things that is often overlooked is just how much forces are placed on the body when we move with higher speeds or with greater loads. It's an important note to be really honest because sometimes when we land or change direction, we have 5x the amount of body mass 
in terms of force and newtons we're absorbing at any given time right and this might lead to well, okay we need to get stronger we need to do a bunch of things before we start to do plyos or change direction but the reality is these forces are happening whether we do that or not that every time we land every time we take a step there's decelerated forces that we need to kind of we need to understand now where compressional discontinuity really comes into play is this aspect of when we absorb those forces, there's gonna be spaces between the joints that we really need to figure out how to manage. And spacing between the joint is important. Talked a lot about this throughout the entirety of all our movement. And the big central premise is this idea of variability to handle this high entropy environment or this chaotic environment, this unpredictable environment, the, the less variability that we have, the harder it is to handle the unpredictable. And the best way to do that is to have a really good variable system. A system that is variable is resilient, right? That is one of the fundamental laws of evolution. That is not the strongest y'all survive, it's the most resilient and that really is the person that can, or the thing, or the organism that can handle the most variance. Right? Why a cockroach lasts longer than an elephant. It is more capable to handling diverse environments than an elephant. And we gotta think about that from our orthopedic system. We gotta think about that from our skeletal system. We gotta think about that from our muscular system. That the more we can handle variance, the better we're gonna be able to handle that environment. And there's an idea when we talk about this a lot with training that we're gonna push this through our three biomotor outlets, meaning force, velocity, or work. However, when we're thinking about what really allows an athlete to perform at its highest level is the ability to be reactive to the environment in a positive way. And the more variable that system is, the more that reaction is gonna be positive. And it comes down to, can we maintain space? It's all fractal, right? Simple rules repeated. But if you think about it, if I can maintain space between my joints, I'll have a higher probability of surviving whatever is that stress is going to be there if I didn't. And what is space between the joints? It's allowing fluid to move freely. We talked about this with levers last time. There's no such thing as a lever if the fulcrum's not in contact with the effort or moment arm. So if we're looking at this from the context of the ability to maintain space allows for fluid to move more freely then we can start to understand that these compressed structures like bone and these tension structures like fascia or contractile muscle tissue have this big important role, not just to move the bone or move through space, but to maintain that space in between our joints to allow us to move freely and to allow us to move without resistance to allow for that fluid to move more freely. This is important. When we think about compressional discontinuity and what it has actually con connected to fascia, because when every time we talk about tensegrity, pretty much the only thing that's going to come out is fascia. And fascia is just big tension type agent that has contractile abilities as well as force distribution ability to allow for the body to handle forces in multiple vectors and multiple planes of motion without breaking down. That fascia is gonna be this really valuable substance when we're thinking about maintaining uh, the space between our joints as we move or change direction or we start to orient ourselves in different positions. So we look at it from the context of 
variability of the system and looking at depression, compressional discontinuity or maintaining of space between the joint. We think about it from the level of that if I have good space within my joints, I'm gonna have good force length relationships that I'll be able to generate forces over a larger bandwidth. I talked about this with longitudinal hypertrophy that this idea of we're creating more sarcomeres along that muscle fiber to allow us to have a greater force ability at increased lengths. I talked about this from a length tension standpoint, that I can withstand larger tensile forces at a greater bandwidth. See this with force velocity curves, right? That I'll be able to generate higher force at a faster rate because I have more contractile ability and as well as I have maintenance of space that these fluids generate more momentum and move more freely in between our joints so that force goes up at higher velocities or vice versa. Think about this from this idea of force work relationships that I can get greater force output longer. And we talk about this a lot in this context of it all comes from just improving our length and our ability to maintain space within the joint. That the more space I have within my joints, the better space re- space relationship I have between one bone and the other, the better length on both sides or all three sides of that, of that joint from the connective tissue to the muscular tissue, from the fascia tissue to the muscular tissue, the better the function of, through Hill's model, of the series elastic component through to the parallel elastic component, the better performance I have at increased lengths or greater variabilities, the better it is for everything. And one of the areas that we really need to look at is this idea that fluid is just simply not compressible. Right, that we have this interplay of compression and tension. That when we start to look at, wow, okay, that these tensile structures, these things that have contractile abilities and these compressed structures that maintain space within the joints are really moving in a way that allows for fluid, which is not compressible, meaning that it takes on the form or shape of whatever structure is in. So if we start to lose space, that fluid gets pushed to one end of the joint and that creates this offset maintenance of space and controlling of movement. We see a lot of aberrant motion that occurs because we have inadequate space between the joints. That these compressional forces that we're trying to distribute from one one impact up that kinetic chain to the other becomes off, right? That if I lose space in my hip joint, I'm gonna distribute those forces from that joint that should be absorbed from a maintained spatial relationship of that of that head of the femur going into that hip capsule, then all of a sudden I can start to see the downplay of why loss of hip or loss of range of motion or space in that joint is going to have an impact on maybe lumbar pain or maybe knee pain or maybe lack of control or these altered biomechanics to not allow us to move the way we want. Right? So as I think about Tensegrity, again, it's going to get into fascia really fast, and I'm going to get to that very quickly. We have to maintain this idea of the maintenance of space, the maintenance of range of motion, the maintenance of length tension, the maintenance of force velocity, the maintenance of everything is so paramount to what compressional discontinuity is all about, which is the central theme for 
tensor gridity. And tensor gridity is essentially just how well can we maintain space between our joints to allow for this compression and tension to interplay appropriately. One of the things that we see a lot with training programs is it gets very myopically focused on single outlet force velocity or work. And we start to really lean in on KPI exercises. Things like squats, things like bench, things like Olympic lifts. When we start to lose sight of team sports or team or athletes that play in open environments that's unpredicted, there's no point B, they just go. Only constraint really is time, not necessarily movements or planes of motion or anything. We start to get a loss of this space relationship from getting too myopically focused on one aspect of that athlete's performance. Can I move something faster or heavier is usually the outlet. But with that comes with some sort of cost, right? The more I double down on key movement patterns, the loss of spatial relationship I maintain between the joints, especially in different planes of motion, right? You see a powerlifter, ask them to do a lateral squat or a lateral lunge. Ask them to do a pro agility. Ask them to go into an open environment and play tag. You kind of get the visual, right? They've lost all frontal and transverse plane range of motion and control. That the hips pretty much just go back and forward now based off their low bar back, back squat position, their sumo position on deadlift. And when they're asked to do something outside of that vertical or horizontal vector and sagittal plane, they get exposed. They get exposed. They look like they are locked in a certain fixed position. Maybe we can argue that, hey, increasing someone's force output might be improve their velocity, and that might help them run faster across the dotted line. But then we ask that person to go into an open environment and just simply play tag with no predictability. Maybe we ask a hand-dominant sport like football or basketball or baseball to play soccer, and they look like a fish out of water. And this isn't getting into this idea of range and early specialization is a mistake. What this is getting into is what we have a high propensity to do as a profession is lean in on KPI exercises that I can quantify and objectively say I did my job. It's hard to say when we're doing triplanar exercises, like just having a lateral emphasis or a, or a rotational emphasis or a element of moving in a combination of directions per movement that we associate that with easy to quantify and therefore we're doing a great job. We're going to be reductionist by nature. It's just the way we are, the way everyone is, especially with complex open systems like the human body. So when you come across something like Thomas Meyer's anatomy trains or Gary Gray's gift, you're gonna really struggle connecting the dots because it's so hard to objectify. That you're looking at it from the lens of, yeah, like they're moving in all three planes of motion or try to hit different vectors or they're training in a way that is unique and it might be considered fluff or it might be considered not as worth your time because it's hard to objectively say, oh, that didn't really help my sprint time or that didn't help my squat. But the truth is, 
is the people that have zeroed in on the, the, the idea Thomas Myers or Gary Gray has really elicited are probably doing as good of a job, if not better, than the people that get really, really focused on developing force or velocity through certain very limited exercise scope. You know, one of the things Charles Pollock, when I was talked about, was team settings need a more diverse exercise selection, which, to be honest, he was not very good about hitting multiple planes of motion and got very, very myopically focused on just developing a couple key exercises. And it was beautiful because it got fun with certain protocols and methods. But if I look at really complex methods, like let's say that I'm doing a weight release hook, heels elevated back squat with a 10 OXO tempo, that's going to come at the expense of doing something else. It has to, right? It's the law of averages playing out because in order to be able to get to that level of detail, taking a step out of the rack with weight release hooks moving, having a certain prerequisite level of strength to allow myself to be able to do that exercise and actually get something from it, to have the skill and the awareness to do that for a 10 exo tempo, that's going to come at the expect at the at the expense of doing a lateral squat or a posterior lateral squat or working rotational movements with a cable. It just is. It has to. If we only have three, four hours a week of training with our athletes on the high end and you only have a certain amount of time after a movement prep to get to that, what expense do you have to parlay to be able to do that in order to get to that level of doing a 10 xl weight release back squat? Like, I'm just being real with it. Like, there comes with some sort of expense. So when you see Gary Gray talk about, hey, if we hit all three planes of motion between sagittal, frontal, and transverse, have we hit all vectors between vertical, horizontal, and rotational? Have we hit all levels between from my toe all the way to my above my head? Have I hit different, different tweaks of the foot and the hand simultaneously? Like when I see a like lunge pattern and I see someone do a internally rotated lead foot with a, with a contralateral rotation on the opposite hand holding a single dumbbell, that's going to have a certain, a certain pretense as to what that's going to look like. And someone that's very, very myopically focused on, we need to get that person doing heels elevated 10 OXO second back squat that's gonna have a certain response, right? That's gonna be, that's a waste of time. But the truth is, is that the person that probably is doing that intricate exercise that has got to that level of detail with a tweak of a movement pattern, so a lunge with an internally rotated foot and contralateral rotation holding a single dumbbell, is the same expression as that person doing a 10OXO heels elevated weight release hook back squat. Like they're both pushed to such a threshold that they have to get this much nuance within their program. For one end is not a mistake and the other one is a mistake is a wrong is a wrong assertion. That you got too locked in on pushing to such an extreme detail that you're lost sight of what the value of getting stronger is or being able to be competent in all planes of motion. And I think when we start to look at it from the context of if I get too myopically focused on one aspect, I only want to generate more force. 
It's going to come at the expense of moving in multi-planar or multi-vector training. If I get exclusively focused on multi-vector, multi multi-planar training, I'm going to lose my ability to express force or velocity or even go longer to the level I should. It falls into this regression into some sort of mean between there. Right? And we can get into the practical aspect. And we're going to talk about this with our case study. Talk about triplanar training within your training program. We're going to talk about the blend and the balance between biomotor and biomechanical. That we need a we need a healthy amount of both. It could be looking at it from a logistics standpoint of getting triplanar movement prep. We could be looking at it from a meat and potatoes, getting your A series focused on a primary exercise of force velocity work. You could be looking at supplemental work or getting work in our B series or C series focusing on triplanar or multi-vector training. It could be all of that. It could be this dynamic of just saying as a whole, like I know what I'm most susceptible to doing, so I'm going to create some sort of interplay to make sure I do that. And how do you create, how do you start? Where do you start? I think probably the best place to start from a tensegrity fascial oriented training is the fascial line by Thomas Myers and looking at anatomy trains. I think that is the simplest, lowest hanging fruit to say, I need to be more holistic with my training. Am I hitting all of our fascial lines? Am I seeing aberrant motion and loss of control and loss of compressional discontinuity and force being distributed up and down the kinetic chain appropriately by having undertrained fascial lines? You see this most transparently with throwing or striking athletes. They have a dominant side and they're doing that repetitively and making that one side more robust, relatively speaking. So if I see a throwing athlete or a swinging athlete, like a golfer or a baseball, or a baseball bat swing, then I start to look at it from the context of one fascial line, let's just say one sort of spiral line, is going to be more tense and the other one's going to be more length. You know, and it's this other concept from, you know, the PRI world looking at centering, right? That we're going to center in all three planes of motion whenever we move, right? So think about it from a frontal plane centering. That if I move my head over, that the next structure, my thorax, is going to have to move in a contra position, right? So let's say I move my head to the left, my thorax will move to the right, my pelvis will move to the left, my knees will move to the right, and then my feet will be more offloaded to the left. Then we have to have this centering type of ability. And then when we look at centering, not only in the frontal plane, the transverse plane, that as I start to rotate my thorax on a, on a golf swing, I'm gonna keep my head counter to that. I'm gonna keep my pelvis counter to that. So usually when I rotate my thorax, my pelvis rotates opposite. And this creates, this creates a length on a spiral front line or spiral back line. That creates tension. That tension is a, really centered on the idea of how well I can maintain space or compression in certain joints to allow for that counter rotation to occur. So for thinking about any kind of striking, swinging, throwing athlete, and then we gotta come back again to centering. And we gotta come back to as the head rotates, the thorax rotates, the pelvis rotates, that the knees will rotate, the, or the femurs will rotate, I should say, not necessarily the knees, and then the feet will rotate. And my ability to maintain space really allows for me to leverage that tension that my compression of certain joints allows for tension on other other on other structures like fascia 
and allows for me to create torque or create force or velocity. And what is beautiful about that, and this goes into a bioenergetic discussion, that the better I can maintain space and tension, the less actual mechanical energy I need to expend. That if I'm more efficient as I move, I will have a greater propensity to move with fluidity and control, but also with more force or velocity without the expense of using energy substrates. That I don't need to break down glucose and ATP in order to do these things because I'm more efficient. That my more passive structures, the connective tissues, the fascia, the, the tendons, the joint, the tendons and the ligaments, all start to absorb those forces and create this reaction this counter reaction to those forces being placed on it. And it wants to restore. Remember the idea of elasticity is not how much it can stretch something. It's how much that structure that was stretched can restore its normal form. And if we have overly compressed structures and we lost space between the joints, that tension is already there before we even start. So the more we stretch it, the less it's going to get back to its normal state that the rubber band has been held in extended states for extended periods of time, and we've lost that ability to restore its normal form because normal form is now longer. And on one other end, if whatever length inside we have, we have a shortened side. All right, we can look at this from a tonic and phasic muscle. We can look at upper crust, lower crust. There's all these models that have existed for a long period of time. But when we see the pictures in anatomy trains and we see that that visual of of what these lines look at from head to toe not only up and down side to side but rotationally we can start to see the impact from being redundant with activities at the expense of being able to move freely right if you ever seen a pitcher try to do anything athletic it's not a guarantee they're going to be very good they just need to be able to throw a ball really fast Sometimes they're tall, sometimes they're really bad athletes, sometimes they're just very, very poorly body awareness. But the other thing too is they've created this sling from one foot to the opposite shoulder that crosses these joints that centers them in a certain way to create an amazing amount of velocity and force going over the plate. However, you ask them to do a 5-10-5, you ask them to do anything outside the confines of throwing a ball from a mound 60 feet away from the home plate, they really struggle. They really struggle. And it's a matter of looking at it from, they just trained redundantly and they've lost space to provide performance. And we're doing that a lot with our training. We do that quite a bit. You know, golfer's gonna be centered one way, a pitcher's gonna be centered one way, a baseball fielder is gonna be centered one way from throwing and hitting one way. A kicker is gonna be centered one way. You know, do a functional movement screen on any of these guys, you'll see gross left-right asymmetries. That's why five of the seven functional movement screens, with four of them having clearing tests all unilateral, is set up the way it is. Because most people are doing redundant activities and losing not only structural balance from front to back, but side to side, and then rotational in all vectors. And then we have this, this fascial line that's connected one way that's tauter to begin with, that's losing space on one side versus the other. And then all of a sudden we have to integrate some sort of training program, right? And we're going, hey, you're gonna do a split squat Damn, your right foot forward's great. Your left foot forward's awful. What is going on there? Ah, I just can't control it. 
I don't have enough range of motion. Oh man, I'm just weak on that side. You've lost space. You've lost the ability to maintain tension. You've lost the ability to maintain compression. We've lost that force velocity. We've lost that force force length. We've lost that that structure to be able to move freely. And what does that mean? It means we're going to be less resilient in more dynamic or more open environments. You know, if you've ever read Anatomy Trains, they do an amazing job of breaking down the fascial line and its transfer or carryover to the movement patterns that are associated with that, right? So if you see a spiral back line, you automatically will have this image of a throwing athlete. So from my right throwing side shoulder, down in my through my thoracolumbar fascia, through my glute med, through down my TFL, down to the outside part of my foot, going over my peroneals, and then basically just creating this sling from my right hand to my left foot. So as I start to create a stretch, I pick up my left leg, I pull on that fascial line, wherever it is. It might be tighter in that thoracolumbar fascia, it might be tighter in from the TFL down to the foot. But I've learned to leverage creating tension and compression in certain joints to create on this like support like side to be able to generate a high amount of force. Now imagine if I was asked to throw with my left hand. It just looks awkward, it looks wonky. And we always say, and this is something I really want you guys to know about anything that we're doing, that once we get to a certain threshold of really heavy, really fast, or really long, that all things will be revealed. That your lack of space, your lack of control, your lack of ability to move without some sort of aberrant or compromised position, range of motion, or control at that range is going to come out. So if I was going to throw light on my dominant side, won't look bad. If I start to throw heavier, then all of a sudden start to see a lot of things. If I throw maximally on my non-dominant side, it's a lot more transparent. And this is a multifactorial thing, but a large thing you can control is looking at it from this idea of what range of motion, control range and space do you have and how much can we manage this tensegrity of this interplay between compression and tension from one side to the next. <laughs> so, bottom line, tensegrity, compression, dis- compression and tension, the interplay between the two, thinking about it from what a Buckminster Fuller, the creator of this idea, architect who created this idea of tensegrity and creating these tensegrity models that all of a sudden miraculously created suspension bridges and other cool tensegrity structures. We have it within our body. It's called fascia. It's called connective tissue. It's called contractile tissue. It's called bone. It's called tendons, called ligaments, etc. We look at compression, bones. We look at tension, contractile tissue, fascia, and muscle cells. We look at what their job is, is to maintain space and joints to allow fluid to move freely so we have control on one end versus the other as well as full range. And what that allows for us in the other end is better length tension, better force tension or length tension, better force length, better force velocity, better force work, better everything. Better in all three planes of motion, better in terms of symmetry from front to back, side to side, and left to right, or rotational. Better from the ability to handle dynamic environments, but not only that, being more proficient in dynamic environments, to be more capable in dynamic environments. 
Now, if you go to the website, phpodcast.com, become a member, go to the 10 Security model, you'll see a bunch of different videos from guys like Gary Gray who talk about tweakology and talk about the interplay of fascia. You see Thomas Myers' breakdown of anatomy trends. I think these are all incredible resources. And that's hope with PH Podcasts is all I'm doing is trying to go over all the stuff that I've read, learned, and implemented within my setting. And anyone ever seen any of my programs, you'll see a lot of different funnel and transverse plane stuff. I would say more so than the most average strength coach out there. And I don't know if that's a great thing or a bad thing, but you'll see a, you'll see that not at the expense of improving squat or bench or deadlift. I don't care about those exercises. What I care about is bottom line, objective, KPI type of setup. What is my OKR? Improving performance, decreasing injury, improving the abilities that are relevant to the sport. In a team setting, it's an open environment. It is not predicted. They need to be good in all three planes of motion, frontal, sagittal, and transverse, and they need to be all be good through all three vectors, vertical, horizontal, and rotational. And they need to be competent, not only from the ability to get to that position, but they need to be able to control it and recover. They need to have that bandwidth. And it comes down to what's our variability and what's our setup for training to allow us to be good in all those positions and all those range of motions and all those vectors and planes. And when we think about our training and we're thinking about what we're doing, sometimes you need a model. Sometimes you just need the logistics. Like I said before, we want to set up our movement prep. We want to set up our A series. We want to set up our B series. We want to set up our training from a, a day to day, a week to week, a month to month. We want to progress to more open environments, small sided games. We want to think about the bigger picture of what is the actual true value of my training. Is it getting really good at squats or is it getting really good? That is where tensegrity has to come into your mind. That if you're just listening to this and you're not a member of PH Podcast, you're not going through the case studies, you're not seeing the visual and the written part, you're only getting a snapshot of what we're going through and you're only getting the value which you're kind of pulling from this. And you can disagree with everything I'm saying or you could say there's a lot more to this. And that's the way all of these are set up. Tensegrity is a model. This compressional discontinuity is a model. Lever system is a model. Space between the joints and allowing for fluid and hydrodynamics is a model that you all need to be aware of. And that's all these all these modules. They're all, all models that we're just trying to pull from, not trying to become myopically focused on it one versus the other. Force length is a model. And they all have an interplay. And models are built upon other models. Models are interplay with other models. Models are all the product of what we do and what we need to understand on a higher level. Hope you guys hope you guys really get, take your time get on the get on the actual website to see the curriculum will help a ton, as well as check out next week get a case study, and then in two weeks we got ourselves Brajesh Patel head strength coach at Quinnipiac who's a good friend who's going to talk a lot about how he thinks about fashion intensity within his setting. Hope you guys enjoy. Head over to phpodcast.com to get keep diving into all these modules and much much more.